this time together, we've really, truly enjoyed singing to you. The truth of your word, the truth of who you are, stimulates us. And we sing and we stimulate each other. And then, Lord, we cap that off with pouring ourselves into your inspired word. We get to hear from you today through God's word. And every time we open the Bible, whether individually or corporately, And so, Lord, we thank you for the great blessings of being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we not take that for granted. May we lay down other things that hinder us from being truly uh, evident Christ-centered believers, Lord. Lord, I know this passage today will challenge us as it has challenged me all week. Lord, thank you for so many that we partner with here and abroad, Lord, with this proclamation of the glories of Christ through his word. What a pleasure to talk to missionaries this week, halfway around the world, who are in the battle, who are preaching truth, who are evangelizing and reaching the lost. Lord, my heart is so encouraged by what you're doing. And Lord, you seem to be stimulating your true church. It's coming out of the nonsense. It's coming away from all of the compromises that are going on. And we pray that this church and many others will stand for truth, Lord, in a very humble, loving way, but may we stand. Lord, there are many who are going through procedures. Some have gone through treatment this week. Um, Lord, we, we pray for them, God. We ask that you would lo- wrap your loving arms around them. Uh, give them courage. Give them a stronger faith, Lord, as they suffer. Lord, help them to know that we love them and miss them, Lord. Father, now as we turn to your word, we pray that your spirit would prick our hearts, cause us to be attentive to this living word that we listen to. And may you bring people to yourself, and may you strengthen those who belong to you already. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1-12 through 12 is our text. As I jump into this, I'm going to ask you some questions. What's your passion? What are you passionate about? We all have passions, don't we? But what are you truly a passion about? And what comes out of you, listen to this, when you're challenged? That's a good question, isn't it? What comes out, blah, or something good when you're challenged? And how do you respond to others on a daily uh, social media or family or whatever it may be, how do you respond to others? Well, when it comes to the Apostle Paul, when you study him and when he squeezed and when he is challenged, the gospel, his love for Christ, and his love for Christ's church comes out of him in a radiant way. You can see this throughout his scriptures. Just look at verse 12. Towards the end of verse 12, we'll finish in this verse this morning. But notice he says, but we endure all things so that We will cause no hindrance for the gospel of Christ. Look at verse 16, the end of verse 16. For woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This is what comes out of the Apostle Paul. This is what causes this man to be so consumed with doing what's right. It's the gospel. Well, what brings about this spiritual phenomenon that comes out of the apostle here. Well, you remember in chapter 8, verse 13, we left off of this verse last week, and 
there we see that Paul was willing to give up everything so they would not cause a weaker brother to stumble. This lifestyle, um, and, and you think about that. Am I willing to, to give up anything to, to support or not hinder the cause of Christ? See, Paul made this a lifestyle. This was how he handled himself. And it's because of this love for Christ that he finds himself, and what's interesting in this text, he finds himself at completely at odds with an ascetic group within the Corinth church that he planted. And let me tell you this morning, if you love Jesus, you're going to be at odds with people. I promise you. And that's what happens here. He loves them. And the problem with this ascetic group within the Corinth church is they don't care about weaker brothers and sisters. They care about their views. They're not concerned with the glory of Christ. They want to push what they believe they've gained through knowledge. And to top it off, they don't respect the Apostle Paul who brought the living gospel to them and they would not have a relationship with Jesus or even know about a relationship with Jesus if it wasn't for his gospel presentation. Now, verse 13 of chapter 8 it really propels Paul into a defense of his apostolic position here. And that's what we're going to look at today. And you'll notice as we go through this, he'll launch into one rhetorical question after another. As he defends his apostleship in the first two verses. And then he'll set out to defend his God-given rights from 3 through 12. And he has a right to defend this. And yet, he'll lay all that aside so that the gospel will not be hindered. Now, as we study this, you'll see throughout his defense that the Corinthians seem to have very little concern for his well-being. This is the pastor, the church planter of their church. You'll see they, they don't really care about his well-being. They don't really care about his personal life, and they have no concern for his finances. And with all that said... What Paul does is he clarifies that he preaches a gospel that's free of works. He preaches a gospel that's free of charge because his faith is in Christ. His faith is in the power of God, the wisdom of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. And so he keeps going. And despite how they treat them, despite how they fail to support him, Paul has a mandate to stand for the gospel. You say, well, maybe this passage is about a preacher. No, I think that's truth for every one of us. If we live the Christian life, you will have opposition. Jesus himself said you'll have many tribulations if you walk with me, if you follow me. So today's lesson for us is what are you willing to give up so that you will not hinder the gospel? What are you willing to endure for the sake of of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That will be the challenge today. Before we get going, I, I do want to say this. Do you believe the gospel? Are you a born-again believer? Do you believe that God has gifted you faith? I, I think that's so important as we go into a lesson like this. You believe that you were a sinner and that you had no recourse to save yourself. You came to God empty-handed. I have no works. I have nothing to offer myself to you. I come pleading for your grace and mercy to rescue me. Is that you? It's a good question, isn't it? 
I think probably many in this room could say, yes, I do believe that. See, if that has not taken place, this message may only make you like the Corinthians where you find yourself constantly justifying that you're good and you have knowledge and you've gained something. I don't want you to be that way. That'll send you to hell. The only ones who are in heaven are those who came empty-handed to God. And they come to him through Jesus Christ. So if you're not sure that if you died today that you would be immediately in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, I would ask you to plead with God to save you today. Plead with him. Ask him to open your heart and mind to who he is. If you're here today and you truly believe the gospel, my prayer is that we will learn to set aside things that hinder our testimony of Jesus Christ. And that we would be ones who really speak and live the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let me give you four thoughts in this text today. Starting with number one, a Christ-centered defense of Paul's apostolic position. Verses one through two. Look at verse one with me. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Well, here Paul poses a series of these four, as you notice, rhetorical questions that relate to his life and his apostolic position, right? And they really demand an affirming answer, right? He's asking in such a way that it demands an answer. Notice the first question is, am I free? Well, I think this is directly tied to the last verse of chapter 8, verse 13. He says in that, look, I'll never eat meat again, right? If it, would, if it was to cause somebody to stumble. But that doesn't mean that's a law. He says, am I not free? That's my choice to do those things. See, certainly Paul was free to eat whatever he wanted, but his freedom was in enjoying Jesus Christ. See, when you enjoy Jesus Christ, you're willing to lay down things that would be offensive to those that you want to reach. And so this allowed Paul to give up things. It allows you to give up things when you love love the Lord Jesus Christ, even though you are free. And doubtlessly, the Corinthians thought Paul was probably weak. And 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 that's because they lacked a love for Christ and his gospel and others. But look at verse 19. We'll see this next time we get together after Easter on this. But he says this, For though I am free from all men... I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. See his reasoning? See why he's willing to give up things that are not necessarily wrong? He looks at this life as one track, one loop around, and then eternity. And so he speaks with such affirming thoughts. Am I not free to do this? I'm free to give this up so that I may win Christ more. Is that our goal? Win more to Christ. Or listen, is this some religious conviction that you're pushing on somebody or some exercise of your freedom that you want to press upon somebody else? That's legalism. That's not what Paul's doing here. In fact, he finds himself so free. I'm so free to give up things, good, bad, whatever, for the cause of Christ. Notice the second question. He says, am I not an apostle? Well, this is the first of many direct statements and questions that Paul makes about his apostolic position, though he's alluded to it several times already in the first eight chapters. And yet you can pick up a, a, a hint of indignant criticism here. They're doubting he's an apostle. 
See, his opponents, they, they, they were willing to criticize him because they believe he didn't fulfill the apostolic mandate of Acts 1, right? And this is where, remember, Matthias was appointed as an apostle because Judas denied Christ and hung himself and so forth, right? Sold him out and all those things. And in that, there were several acquirements, and they were holding to this, and they would match Paul up against it, and they said, well, you're not an apostle. And most likely this was their motive. Number one, in that, those verses in Acts chapter 1, starting, I think, around verse 21, they had to be one, an apostle had to be one who followed Jesus from the time of his baptism to his ascension on the Mount of Olives. Well, I'll let Paul out. And then the second criteria in that passage, as they chose Matthias there, was that they had witnessed the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, clearly Paul had not been numbered with the twelve, right? He wasn't even of age to do that. And he, he was not present for that daily instruction that Christ gave the disciples during those three years of his ministry on earth. But listen, Paul knew God had called him. In fact, it's even more detailed. He knew Jesus had called him. He was sure of those things. There are several references I just want to give you. You can jot these down for the sake of time. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Paul has just been blinded and knocked off his steed as he was headed for Damascus to persecute the church there. And he is brought to a man named Ananias, who is a leader of the church in the area. And Ananias is afraid of him. He knows who he is. He knows he murders people and puts people in prison and he's attacked the way ever since it has begun. And, and so Ananias says, Lord, I'm fearful of this. And God says to him in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, go, now listen to this, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. And then he goes on to say, and he will suffer greatly for that. So right there we begin to see this is a sent one. That's a, an essential element of an apostle that he was sent. Acts chapter 13, he's at the church of Antioch and they're recognizing um, Barnabas and Saul. And the elders there were appointing these men, verse 2 of chapter 13 and following, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. <laughs> so we got Christ speaking about him. We got God speaking about him. We've got the Spirit speaking about him. You'll see this in all this text. The whole Trinity is speaking about Paul. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And then when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Acts twenty two twenty one. just after the riot in Ephesus, Paul is defending himself there before he's carried away by a Roman court hort. And he says this. He, 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 he's speaking of what God said to him. He says, God said this to me. <laughs> right? Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. And then I love the, the defense he gives to King Agrippa in Acts 26, 15 and following. He says, and I said, who are you? He's talking about he's, the Lord. He's knocked him off his steed. He's on the road to Damascus in his bright light. And he can hear God speaking to him. And he says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus who you're persecuting. Now listen to this, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you to a minister and a witness, not only to those things which you have seen, but also to things which I will appear to you. 
Now, now that's a fascinating thing. We'll come back to that in a minute. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and Gentiles who I am sending you to open the eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not disappoint the heavenly vision. This is an amazing calling. And so there was no doubt in Paul's heart and mind that he was an appointed apostle by Christ himself, by the Holy Spirit, by the Trinity. Well, this leads us to Paul's present uh, view here of his apostolic position. Notice what he says here. Have I not seen the Lord? Well, if you just look over to 1 Corinthians 15, 8, remember the Bible starts to share that the resurrection of Jesus was seen by over 500 brethren and then starts to make its list down through some of the apostles. And then he says this, and last of all, now listen to this, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So he's fitting all these criteria of what a real apostle is. And now Paul's the last of them, right? There's, trust me, some of you heard what's going down the street here. There are no new apostles, <laughs> We have a completed manual. We preach the word of God. We we don't need anything else. But Paul knew he was. He says, he appeared to me. I love that phrase, untimely born. Maybe he's thinking, oh, Lord, I wish I could have walked with you. But the Lord solved that. We'll see shortly here. He sends him out to the wilderness and there ministers to him for years. So Paul believed that his experience on the Damascus road was far more than just some mere vision. For Paul, he It was a resurrection appearance to him. And I think he believed, and I think it is too, was equal to the rest of the apostles' experience. In fact, in some ways, what was said on that resurrection appearance on Damascus Road was absolutely powerful and looked to our own salvation as he was appointed to the Gentiles. And you think about this, though many... Many saw the resurrected Christ, right? 500 plus these other apostles and so forth. But they did not become apostles. But it's Apostle Paul that was given, listen to this, the personal commissioning by Christ to be an apostle. Listen to Galatians chapter 1, 15 through 19. This is very important when we study the apostolic position of Paul. But when God, now he's, you can just see the whole trinity is involved in his calling, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb. Now stop right there. He didn't know that before he was saved, but now he's saved. Now he's studied the scriptures. Now he knows God through Christ rightly. He has a sovereign view of life, doesn't he? So even when I was in the womb and all of my rebellious life where I tried to crush the church, I now know God set me apart from birth. Wow, what a sovereign statement. He goes on to say, say this, and called me through his grace, you don't get called any other way, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now listen to this. I did not immediately consult flesh and blood. I didn't run to the other apostles. I didn't run to, and go take seminary. There wasn't any. This is what he says. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. So how is he going to know this Jesus? How is he going to experience such profound understanding of what Christ did? He says this, but I went away to Arabia 
and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, later uh, I went up to Jerusalem and became acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days, but I did not see any other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Well, you start putting these passages together, you go, oh my goodness, Paul had this amazing seminary experience with Christ in the desert. See, this is why we find phrases like this, 1 Corinthians 11, I think 23, somewhere in there. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. See, he wasn't there the night of Christ's death. The Lord was instructing him himself, and yet the Corinthians are going, well, you know, we just don't think you're an apostle. We really lack respect for you. But look, clearly this resurrection appearance, this commissioning by Jesus Christ, there's just no discussion that does not prove that he is not the apostle. And even Peter, even Peter who he had to, you know, uh, rebuke in Galatians because he was kind of acting a little bit hypocritical, right? Um, he rebuked him there. But even at the end of Peter's last words, the last inspired letter that Peter writes, he says, listen to Paul. His, his words are weighty, but they're from God. And so we see this being an affirmation of Paul's apostleship. Look at the second uh, question in this set here. It says, are you not my work in the Lord? Well, Paul's second criteria for his uh, apostleship is establishing churches. Can you, can you turn with me to Romans chapter 15 real quick? This is one of many passages that talks about this, this qualification of his apostolic position. And is that he established churches that God worked through him. Romans chapter 15, verse 17 and following. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of, of the Gentiles by word and deed. So right there he's setting up. Look, um, I'm going to boast in Christ, but the result of what Jesus has done is the church has been established. The Gentiles have heard the word and deed as well. And notice in power and signs and wonders, it wasn't a completed manual yet, so God was doing extraordinary things to, to show that Paul was his man. He was speaking on behalf of God in the power of the Spirit. So the Spirit was still active and with him and, and very much a part of his ministry. So that from, listen to this, from Jerusalem and roundabout from Icarium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspire to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see him, and they who have not heard shall understand. And so one of the great uh, critiques of an apostle, particularly Apostle Paul here, is that God used him to establish churches. Now, think about this. The same is true with the church in Corinth. And even though they maybe struggled to admit it at this point in their relationship with Paul, the gospel was proclaimed, and if Paul would not have come, sent by God, they would remain in spiritual darkness. This is Paul's point. This is what makes me an apostle. And so these Gentile Christians, they're, they're proof positive of, of Paul's apostolic position to the Gentiles. Now, the work of founding and building the church is not a human endeavor. You can see that in this passage in Romans. But God does use humans to do this. And so notice what Paul says as you turn back to our text. He says, 
Are you not my work in the Lord? See, see, your testimony, your proof positive that I am an apostle. Because you're here, you're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2 here. If to others I am not an apostle, at least to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Well, here the apostle, apostle seeks to drive his point home with those in Corinth, that he is indeed an apostle of the Lord. And, and doubtlessly, listen, as a former persecutor of the church, um, Paul knew that some people were not going to warm up to him as easy, right? Again, in Galatians chapter 1, he said, I was still unknown, verse 22, by sight to the churches of Judea, which are in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith, which, is, which he once tried to destroy. Remember, there, there were some hurdles he had to get over. This guy maybe had put your family in prison or even seen to the death of someone. It, it was tough hurdles. I, I love Barnabas. Um, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, right? That's his title. Every preaching pastor needs one of those. You need a son of encouragement because we're always, everything analyzes what we say. We need somebody to come encourage us. I have many of those here. Um, and I, I love him because there was times where people really went after Paul and Barnabas stuck up for him and said, you don't, you don't know what you're talking about here. This man's sent by God. And God has truly transformed him. Paul, in his absence of Corinth, what happens here is some of these ascetic group within, Corinth, within the Corinth church, they rise up and they're questioning the validity of his, his apostleship. Notice it says others there. Uh, and I think that's a term that most likely refers to people maybe who haven't met Paul or tasted Christ from his ministry. Um, but look at what he says. You, you, you may not... He may not be regarded as an apostle to them, right? The ones who don't know him. But what he's saying here is you certainly should know I'm an apostle because I spent a year and a half with you. I think what he's saying, in other words, Paul is saying that, that maybe some doubt me who haven't, I haven't had an opportunity to minister to them. But you should not be among that case, right? For I planted your church and by my ministry through the gospel and the work of the Spirit, you're believers, I think he's really challenging them here. Are you either a believer or you're not? Do you understand that God has used me to do that? And then this last phrase in verse 2 here is fascinating. He says, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Well, clearly Christ sealed Paul's apostleship, right? But notice he's identifying the Corinth church as a seal of vital evidence of his apostolic authority. I love what he writes in the second book, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 2. He says, you are our letter. You're written on our hearts and known and read by all men. He, he really seen them as an affirmation that God had sent them and had done great things. And that's what God did. I mean, think about what God did to him. He, went in, he sent Paul into this amazingly deep pagan culture. He sent Paul where there was no Christians that we know of. Sends them into this into this difficult world. And there he establishes a church, saves many people. And so he says, look, at least I am to you. Notice that in the phrase there. At least I am to you. You should, you should understand. You're, you're a seal. You're a guarantee of that I'm genuine. And I love the way he ends this because it's all done in the Lord. See, this is this Christ-centered defense that Paul has of his apostolic position. 
Now, if the Lord appointed Paul to be an apostle, then the Corinthians are in the Lord, and they, and they validate that. Second thought here this morning as we continue to work through verses 6 through 3, sac- sacrificing personal rights for the sake of the gospel. Look at verse 3 with me. My defense to those who examine me is this. Now, this is an interesting phrase. It's particularly interesting in the Greek, and um, there's two schools of thought. Maybe there's some that say that this verse is uh, looking back at the first two verses, and there's some, and this is where I stand, I think it's looking forward. Because I think this is, now he's given this uh, defense of, of what he's given up, what rights he's given up so that he can proclaim the gospel. There's an interesting word there. Do you see that word examine? Um, the root word is kreno, which is to judge, but it has a, a suffix on it, a prefix on it, excuse me, um, and it's anacrino, and, and it's, a, it's a very legal term. And it, it means to examine something in-depthly before you make a decision. And so Paul says here, verse 3, my defense to those who want to examine me in this. And Paul, he wants to defend that his rights to be supported financially. Now look at what he does in verse 4. So here's the first right. Do we not have a right to eat or drink? Well, I think Paul, what he's doing here is he's starting with the basic essentials, eating and drinking. I think that's pretty basic, isn't it? And, and, and he goes, don't, don't I have the right to that? Let alone an apostle or a pastor who works hard to nourish the flock, don't I have a right to the basic essentials? Paul wrote to Timothy as Timothy was reorganizing the church in Ephesus that, Ephesus that lost its way. He said in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, he says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard in preaching and teaching. Well, that word honor is our Greek word teme, which we get our word honorarium from, which is a financial term. And so there's times when we study the early church, they were not caring financially for their pastors. And so Paul writes to Timothy, make sure they're doing this. Make sure they're caring for these men so they're free. And then he uses a verse that we're going to see here in a few moments, that you should not muzzle the ox while he's, while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul in Galatia, Galatians 6.6 6 also teaches us. He says, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Maybe you've heard this before, and I actually had this happen to me from a parishioner. Um, one dear older lady came up to me one day, and I was preaching in another church, trying to encourage the church to support their pastor. They were having some problems. And she said exactly this, we keep our pastor poor so he'll learn to trust God. I'm glad I'm not coming here. <laughs> I can trust God with a salary. <laughs> and that's been the mentality sometimes of of members of churches. And this is what Paul's up against. He's, he's brought the glorious gospel of eternal life to them. And they won't pay him. They won't care for his daily needs, eating and drinking. See, you give money to what you, what you see is valuable, right? You, you give money to what you deem is value, right? And, and it's clear that at least with this ascetic group within the Corinth church, they did not value the Apostle Paul's ministry. Now notice he goes to a second right, verse 5. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? 
with the ascetics, we know this as we study chapter 7, the ascetics believe that you are more righteous if you are single. In fact, they were even pushing divorce to be more righteous, unbiblical divorce. And in fact, they, Paul had to get on them, and so they began to teach that if you were celibate in your marriage, you were more righteous. They had such an unbiblical view of what marriage was. But Paul, Paul's responding to these unbiblical comments in a way here still. And notice how Paul supports his instruction on being equally yoked in marriage. Notice he says, don't we have a right to take along a believing wife? So he's supporting the teaching that he gave in chapter 7, verse 39. So Paul says, look, don't we have the right to have a Christian wife? And notice that he notes that the other apostles have wives, and even the brothers of Jesus have wives. And we know Peter had one because Jesus healed his mother-in-law in Matthew chapter 8, which I think is really miraculous. Never mind. <laughs> Paul, Paul was single, right? We, we know that. We get this in this text. He says, I wish that all men were as I, but each one has his gift from the Lord, right? So he's, he's either single because his wife died or she abandoned him. But whatever the case, Paul is declaring that he has the right to marry like any other believer. So he's responding. They are, they are getting on him about even his views of marriage and singleness. But he chose, look, Paul chose to remain single because he believed it was the most, he could be the most effective in his singleness in spreading the gospel. However, there's, there's more instruction here than meets the eye. Notice this little phrase where he says, take along. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? And many theologians believe that Paul is encouraging churches to support a pastor in such a way that he can have a family. See, Paul himself was single, but he's, you can see that he's encouraging. Look, you have to, a, a man who preaches, most men need a wife. And they need to be able to sustain that wife and who aids them in the ministry and the children that obviously will come with that wife. There, there's nothing more difficult or challenging than surrendering uh, yourself and step out of gaining your own income, in, in a sense, and saying, Lord, I step out in faith and trust you, I'm going to go in the ministry. For us, that was a massive step. It was a huge step. It was a step that had to fight pride. I'd earned my own living. I had worked hard. I was trained by my father to work hard. And God calling us in the ministry, you're going to step away from that paycheck that you know that's coming, and you're not sure how God's going to meet your needs. See, there's a lot of pressure that comes with that. And then you think about the family, the pastor's home. There's, there's pressure of constant study. I spend hours preparing, and that means I'm away from Gina. Preparing a message to preach the Word of God. First, I have to go through my own heart and then prepare it to preach it accurately and right. There's long hours that take you away from home. There's hardships that, that are put on the pastor's home, and some pastors have really struggled with that. Pastor's wife just plays this massive role, and Paul's saying, look... You don't I have the right to take one along? That means you have to not only support me, feed me, let me I have enough to eat and drink, but you also have to take care of my wife and children if need be. Let me say this, personally speaking, I cannot do what I do without that woman. <laughs> it's impossible. Uh, maybe, it, maybe for some, but for me, I know I need her in every step of my ministry. And for all these years, we have served the Lord together. And I, and I get this when I read this. When you study church budgets and you just look at our budget, our largest line item is our pastoral staff. And it should be. 
(laughs) Because that's where we pour our money into those who care for the souls of others so that the souls of the littlest ones to the oldest ones are cared for. We invest in people. In any Bible-teaching church, if you look at their their budgets, you will find the same to be true. So what Paul's doing here is he's pointing out that he has the right to receive not only support for himself, but even a wife if he chooses to have have one. But look, as you study this, it seems to me, and I hope you see this, that the Corinth church is not a generous church. And they, they seem to reflect this attitude towards Paul that he's not worthy of giving their money to. And this is one of the most wealthy churches in all of Paul's history of church plants. Look at verse 6 with me. Or do not Barnabas and I have the right to refrain from working? Well, with what seems to be a touch of spiritual sarcasm here, I think Paul's doing here, Paul's challenging the church with this question. To us, the answer is obvious. Paul and Barnabas had had as much right as anyone else to gain their livelihood from the ministry. And these two servants of the Lord, when you study their lives, they voluntarily made their living from from making tents so so that they wouldn't be obligated to the church, but they shouldn't have to be that way. This church should have said, oh, you've brought us the living truth. Oh, we want to care for you. Our ministries... Our ministry with Gene and I just changed dramatically when I stepped off the horse. It was, I'll just never forget that when I was trying to pastor church and trying to cowboy and trying to run ranches. And, and it just felt like I was serving two masters. But there was, when you stepped off, you weren't sure there was anything there. <laughs> Whew. We got a house payment, hon. We got to pray God will meet that. And see, what what a church does is when they're fed, they want to feed their pastor. And that's what this text is about. And so the benefits of having a pastor who is free to study and shepherd are just incalculable. I I remember the the teaching level, I think, at least. uh, You have to ask Gina. I think my teaching level went out tremendously when I wasn't working 40, 50, 60 hours on the ranch. When, when we really began to study and to counsel and to shepherd the flock, it was just, it's an incalculable measure that the church has. So Paul here, when you think about him, he sacrificially gives up his personal rights. I mean sleep and everything else for the sake of the gospel here. Number three, the Lord's servants are to receive a physical reward for their spiritual labor. Look at verse seven with me. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Or who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Well, to support this argument that Paul is building here, he gives three illustrations, very obvious and very compelling uh, illustrations that Paul's called and qualified. First is the soldier. Can you imagine a soldier, a, a man or woman who protects our freedoms, who puts their life on their line, fighting all day, but then at night goes and works at McDonald's. Yeah, we're going to be in trouble. <laughs> we got that kind of issue going on. Now, our military isn't quite what it used to be, but the military is to provide clothing, food, weapons, barracks, salaries, and so forth for those to be good soldiers. And so Paul is saying, look, that, that, that's an obvious thing, right? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? 
Paul uses this to Timothy as he is a young pastor at Ephesus. He says in 2 Timothy 2.4, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who's enlisted him as a soldier. So we don't want our soldiers, you know, out selling cars, you know, when, when the world's enemies and the communists of the world are bringing their ships to our shores. It's obvious they need to be compensated. Then he goes to the farmer. I really enjoy this one. Can you imagine a farmer here who has a fruit and vegetable stand but doesn't get to eat any of it? Doesn't supply his family nourishment through these things. Paul again, 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy 2, 6. The hardworking farm, farmer ought to be first to receive his share of the crops. And then the shepherd here. Notice he talks using the shepherd and milk. And so may, may, must be talking about that that goat-sheep uh, mix that's in the Middle East that they use there that they milk quite often. But the shepherd was to enjoy daily milk um, from his animals, and, and he was to feed his family and produce products that come from this milk. So Paul gives these three examples, the soldier, the farmer, the shepherd, as very fitting in this apostolic culture, as, look, this, this is what they receive for doing what they're doing. Isn't that so elementary? Isn't it elementary? You know, when I, when I was candidating here, and I was meeting with the um, search committee, I'd become so convinced that this church had uh, a history and the possibilities of being a church that would hold, continue to hold up the word of God that I never asked what it paid for. I remember the last time we were here, the Sunday afternoon, we're walking out, we got to go jump on a plane and fly back to California. And I turned around and turned to the search committee, I go, what's this thing pay? <laughs> See, there wasn't a concern because I knew this group of people loved the Lord Jesus Christ. They had been well taught for many years. They had held the word of God in high esteem. And so they would, they would take care of the men who feed them and nourish them spiritually. And see, this is what this was not happening here in Paul's life. So he gives these illustrations here. Look at verses 8 and 9. Now, I'm not speaking here things according to human judgment, am I? Or does the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Well, this principle of workers being paid what they're due is, is not just a human concept, right? So, so Paul, as he always does, he turns to the scriptures he knows that's where he's going to find the answer. And so he turns to the Scripture and he gives the authority of the Scriptures as the answer to them. Here the law refers precisely to this, the Pentateuch, right? They're the law of Moses. And remember, in the first century, they looked at the Old Testament as that was the Word of God. There is no New Testament yet. So they would look at the Old Testament and understand that law under Christ, completed in Christ and how to live their lives. I think that's a real important point. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So if, if you come to our midweek series, we're working our way through the Pentateuch, and we teach a real biblical theology through it, so we know it's all pointing, all of it's a shadow coming to Christ. But even as we go through that, those who attend on Wednesday nights, we are just amazed at how good the law is for society. From everything from gender to sexuality to, to caring for one another to uh, reconciliation. I mean, so many things the law teaches that are very, very good if it's used wisely. So here, 
Paul turns to it. He, and, and notice in verse 9, he's quoting Deuteronomy 25.4, which he also quoted in 1 Timothy 5.18 that I read earlier. Um, these verses um, here teach that, hey, don't, don't muzzle this ox. Now, there's a ton of verses, and I thought about this, there's a ton of verses in the law, um, in the Proverbs as well, that speak about paying a person their wage before the sun goes down. That it was unlawful to hire somebody but not pay them wages. And I thought, well, Lord, why didn't you have him use one of those? Um, but I think what, why he did this is I think Paul is reasoning from the lesser to the greater. And, and what I mean by that is God wants the... God does care about the farmer's care for his oxen, but it's more pointing to how much greater that mankind is than the animal. So to not muzzle the ox meant that you allow the animal to work. He's working hard. He's grinding your grain, but he can eat off the threshing floor. That was their payment. And so then there's this little phrase at the end, and we always have to deal with this because somebody comes up and says, God doesn't like my dog. He says, God is not concerned about the oxen, is he? (laughs) Well, uh, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about his creation, right? Matthew chapter 6 says that he he cares about the sparrows, right? And they don't sow and gather. The Bible is really clear about this. He cares about a sparrow. They're in every continent of the world. Everywhere you go, you travel around the world, you see sparrows. But then he makes the point, but how much greater are you? And that's the idea here. Despite the Lord's love for his creation, he loves and has a special love for those who bear his image. And so Paul's tying this in. He took time to go through the law to show that even the law shows that an animal is worth its wages. Why am I not worth my wages? Look at verse 10. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? So he's answering the question now, and rhetorically. Yes, for our sake, it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of the sharing of the crop. Now, notice he says this is speaking for altogether for our sake. More specifically, how does the church take care of its shepherds? This is what he's talking about. And I think what Paul is saying here, if God, in fact, instructs, instructs man how to care for his animals, he clearly is instructing the members of the church to care for the ministers of the gospel. I love this term here. He says, he goes back to the plowman and the thresher here. And he he says, look, if this man, if this person who works hard has no hope, what difficulties that would be. Can you imagine going to work, and maybe some of you are commission only, this might be apply to you. You work all day long with no hope of, of getting any payment. And you work another day, no hope. It'd be really discouraging. You'd be looking for another job, wouldn't you? See, Paul is saying that the worker has hope that God is going to reward him for his hard work. Why are you withholding this from us? So through his understanding of God's word, Paul believed that he had the right to apply this principle to himself. If working people should be paid for their labor, so should the apostle. Look at verse 11. If we sow spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Now here, there is a, uh, there's a difference here between the Lord's servants are given, uh, they're, they're given material, they, 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 they work in a spiritual way and they receive a, a physical reward, although it is spiritual as well. Corinth wasn't the only church that struggled with this, right? 
So Paul had to instruct Timothy as he's developing leadership. Hey, pay that man who works hard in, 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 the, in the word, right? So there was a problem there. And think about today. This is a huge problem today. The church has become big business. I tell people all this time. You know, they go, man, do you know what they're doing? They're buying this guy who wants a $54 million jet, you know? It's big business. Somewhere along the line, people said, man, I went to this church, and these people just throw money in this plate. It's like, they don't care. They're swiping credit cards. And so they come along and say, man, we could really do something with this. They seem to really like this Jesus guy, so let's, you know, let's talk him up and see if we can make some money. And so now in this, this crazy age, churches become big business. Pastors are, operate like CEOs of major wealthy corporations. And this false prosperity gospel has led people astray in many areas, but including compensation of leaders. Some of these prosperity gospel people make money to spend your head. And so there's always an abuse there. But obviously, think about this. We should give financially to Christian ministries that are biblically sound and responsible. And it begins with your local church. Are you given to the local church? That's, that's where God has you. This is where we minister together. This is where the body of Christ is seen and witnessed through us. And just one other thought on this. When you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, remember he said that you should give to the Lord cheerfully? You know what I think is happening there? I think they took this and said, okay, the Apostle Paul got all over us. We'll give. He's on them. Yeah, you're given now, but you're not giving them the right heart. <laughs> you're still not concerned with the things of Christ, so you have no joy. You're more concerned with your bills. You're more concerned with human things that God can fix like that. And you have no joy. And so joyless giving, Paul has to deal with that in the next letter that he writes. But notice in verse 11... That he's teaching us if someone is sowing spiritual things in you, if that present condition is true, if, you, if someone's pouring in truth of the gospel and helping you grow, then the obvious answer is let them reap material things. Pay them for them. Care for them. Help them. See, Paul had a lot of other churches that he planted who were great examples. He gives examples in other places. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Ephesus, Colossus, and so forth. These were all churches, and many of them were poor or maybe uh, middle class at the best. And Paul later says, they're out giving you. The church with all the wealth. Listen to how he deals with this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to us in the churches of Macedonia. He's not including them. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, their deep poverty overflowed in their wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their abilities, and then he says this, and beyond their abilities, they gave of their own accord, begging us <laughs> with much urgent What's much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not, and this, not as we expect it, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. See, this is what happens when knowledge, when you think you know something more than someone else. When pride begins to really uh, take root in your heart, you don't see what the Lord is doing. 
And you begin to question all those things. And these churches that Paul refers to here in Macedonia, they really set a pattern and an attitude of giving for the model for a model believer. MacArthur writing on this verse, this particular verse said this. He said, it is the Lord's will that we be generous to our pastors, our educational workers, our missionaries, and to those leaders of any kind who come and minister to us just as God has been so immeasurably generous to us. Oh, the Lord's servant that, that physically and spiritually works among you to help you grow, he should be rewarded. Last thought, number four here. The Lord's true servant will not cause hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Look at this last verse. If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance of the gospel of Christ. Well, Paul's saying that others have exercised the right, right? They, they've asked for financial support. And you say, well, maybe who are those others? Well, uh, the Bible doesn't tell, but it could be men like Apollos and Peter. They could be supporting them. Remember in chapter 1, verse 12, they're all arguing, well, I'm of Apollos and I'm of Peter, you know. And so there's a possibility that they're supporting those very, very good men. But interesting enough, Apollos and Peter were not the founders of the church. <laughs> and yet they're sharing, most likely, probably in the financial support of this church. So Paul is rightly asking, if others exercise this right for financial support, shouldn't we who are founders of it have more the right? In other words, the, the one first to share the good news of Jesus Christ should have the right to support you. Through the years, we raised support in our missionary endeavors of planting churches in the rural areas. And I remember one man gave a very, very generous gift one time to us. And I called him and I said, you know, I said, I'm just really humbled that, that I, it was more than I could um, ever expect. And he said, look, your preaching changed my life. And I said, no, Jesus did. He said, I know that, but it came through you. And, and he said, I want to do this. And it really helped me learn that, that God had used a, uh, really a cracked pot to shine light through it, right? Do you understand that? A crooked stick that draws straight lines. And God does that. And this man was being generous to Gina and I and the family and trying to help us financially. Notice here, Paul quickly says, look, we did not use this right. He had the right to do it. It isn't hard to study the book of Acts, verse chapter 18. When Paul gets to Corinth, he stays with Aquila and Basilla there. That's where he hangs out. He lives with them. They happen to be tip makers as well. So when Paul wasn't preaching in the synagogues daily and taking beatings for it, or discipling new believers or teaching home to home, he had, a, he had to use a spare time, whatever that was, to sew tents together so he could eat and drink. And this is what he's talking about. We didn't even use that right. We were in need of these things. But the reason he does this is he doesn't seek this financial comprehension or, or compensation because he knows that he does not want to be a burden to these Corinthian believers. He knows they're weak in this area. I imagine that. Paul calculated this course of action. I would imagine the Spirit of God led him along that if I go after this, which I'm, which I am deserving of, they're going to really fall apart. And so he chose to suffer. And think about what happens if if he refused um, to exercise his right for financial support. They would call him a fool. You put in all that effort and you didn't get any money for it. What a fool! 
If he, if, he, if he accepts the support, they'll say he's greedy. Darn if you do, darn if you don't, right? This is what he was up against. But look, Paul would be a fool for Christ anytime, and this is what he does. And so look, men in the word, men who spend their life, your pastors, your elders, your overseers of this church, God, by your giving, through your giving, graciously supplies our needs. But we keep doing this for nothing. <laughs> I'll preach, I'll preach for, for McDonald's if you want to take me there afterwards. I mean, you just, you're so consumed with Christ that you want people to know. And I think, I think I get my mind around this a little bit when I think about the Apostle Paul. Yeah, he just had great faith. God's going to somehow supply my needs. I want to preach this great message. And this is what he does. He preaches this message. But notice why he does this. Verse, end of verse 12. But we will endure all things so that we will cause, look at this, no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. There's a really strong adversative conjunction here. It just strengthens and explains that preceding comment why we didn't use our right there. And I think what Paul and his fellow workers like Silas and Timothy and possibly Barnabas chose not to exercise their right is they, they didn't want to stumble anybody. They, they, they wanted to not be a hindrance. I looked at that word hindrance and seen how it was used throughout early uh, Greek language and Koine Greek and it's actually a military term. I, did, I didn't know that until I came across my studies on this. It it's actually was used many times of breaking up a road to impede an advancing enemy. It, it carried the idea of interrupting a course of action. So Paul is saying, I, I think about this, he's saying, I didn't want to impede in any way. I did not want to redirect you in any way so that you would come to know my glorious Savior that I know. Man, that's humbling, isn't it? He wrote to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, he says, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry would not be discredited. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants to God in much endurance and much affliction and hardship and distress and beatings and imprisonments and turmoils and labors and sleeplessness and hunger and purity and knowledge and patience and kindness and in the Holy Spirit and in genuine, genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by the glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as, known, uh, uh, as unknown yet known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing possessing all. Wow. Man, that's humbling to read. Is that what we're in Christianity for? Ready to lay it all down? See, that's what, why Paul speaks this way. He told Timothy, he said in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy 10, he says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of the elect. For the sake of the elect. He, he knows God's going to save. I find so much encouragement in that. This is why you study hard, why you preach, why you befriend others, why you, why you are careful what you say to others, why you look for gospel opportunities, because God promised to save the elect. And you can put your confidence in that. And so you, you change your behavior for the glory of God. Because he'll do this. Well, let me close with this. How was your week after hearing this? Did you tear up a road for anybody to get to see the glorious Christ? Did you tear up something so somebody couldn't see Jesus because you were prideful? 
Did we say anything that we should not have said that would hurt the gospel? Did we post something we shouldn't have posted? Did we take a stand on something that only displayed our legalism? Or did we try to be the holiest spirit and try to accomplish what only he can accomplish? See, these are areas now that practical application of this comes to. Are you, listen, are, are we a hindrance to the gospel? To your children? To your spouse? Co-workers? Neighbors? Is there areas that got to go? Hills that you think are worth dying on are just molehills, but you made them into mountains. Are you willing to let that go? See, what are we willing to give up for the sake of the advancement of the gospel? See, this is what it came down to. Paul was deserving of financial care so he could eat and, and drink, he, so he could have the basics. And he said, I'll give that up for the sake of the gospel. And then finally, what percentage of what God has given us do we give back to his local church? One of the things we see in the big mega churches is they have to get very big with smaller staffs because the Christians in those churches don't give. They don't give. They don't give a percentage of what God has given back to them. So they may have to have more people, bigger buildings, because they have to get more people in there because the percentage is so small. And really that comes down to your view of Jesus. Is he worthy to give to? Is he worthy to trust that he will sustain you? I've said this many times. You've heard it from this pulpit. God did not save us to drown us. And that's faith. And you may have to step off a horse and step into something you don't know how it's all going to go because you're going to trust God the way you live, the way you talk, what you listen to, and how you give. Well, the study of this letter to the Corinthians is one thing, but to learn from it's another. And that's what keeps hitting me. And what I learn is there's a centrality of Christ in his gospel that Paul puts in place in every area of his life. Can we say that? Can we say that Christ is central? You know, I know we're growing. I know it's a process, right? But did you take a step today? Did we? Oh, Lord, I want you to be central in my finances. I want you to be central in my marriage. I want you to be central in my parenting. I want you to be central in my job. And I want you to be central in my speech and what I type and what I say and what I do and what I sing. I want you to be central. Father, we are encouraged by what you did in Paul's life. You took a man who persecuted the church, prideful and arrogant, a violent aggressor he called himself. And you made him a man that would give up the basic needs of life so the gospel could go forth. Lord, he had such an eternal perspective. We Americans lose that so easily. We get caught up in the American dream. And Lord, you are good and kind to us and you give to us so abundantly. But Lord, we pray that we would learn from your servant, Paul. As he learned and set an example by following you, Lord Jesus, who gave up everything. Who when reviled, did not revile in return. When he was threatened, he did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Paul learned from his Savior. And I pray, Lord, you would help us, members of Riverbend Community Church, to learn from our Savior. And we thank you for the men and women that the scriptures record who laid down their lives so they would not hinder the furtherance of the gospel. 
And Lord, we pray you would help us do that as well. In Jesus' name, amen.